Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. I was thinking on the way up here about times in my life where I've made really big decisions and what was it that kind of propelled me towards that? What was it that convinced me of that? And I was thinking about how in each of the sort of three of the main decisions I've made in my life, it was actually just a fairly random piece of art actually that drove it. So for example, I wanted to move to the UK and emigrate from Australia and no one gave me the case for why I should move to the UK or how I would have a better life here or or anything like that but it was actually from binge watching episodes of The Young Ones which of course is like really old now but there was something about the bonkers but nevertheless community that they that show represents that made me think I want to go and live in London and then I had a similar thing where I was <laughs> struggling with the whole thing of do I want to get into a relationship with David and all that kind of stuff. And in all of the kind of turbulence, I, mental turbulence I had over that, it was, and I can't explain it, but it was the song that David Bowie sings about, um, is it called Under Pressure? Under Pressure? And for some reason, that song just took me from this stuck place to being able to just go yeah. for it. And, and then I think a third one was when I was watching a documentary about Matisse and it was something about his artworks that made me just realise I need to go and study. I was umming and ahhing about whether I wanted to go further down the social work route, which is where I'd come from. And it was engaging with his art that made me realise no one needs to go and do more theology. And mm-hmm. I just noticed in myself that all of those massive decisions or massive relative mm-hmm. to my life mm-hmm were compelled by pieces of art and and not even Christian art per se. Any piece of art, whether it's The Young Ones or Matisse, offers you a world. Mm. And when you engage with any old piece of art, you enter that world. And to some extreme, it's like my idea of the, this idea of knowledge that you uni- unite with the object mm. and you are changed. You don't realise it, but you're, if you really listen to a song, if you really look at a picture, you unite with it in some sense, so you become different. Mm. It, it has this sort of catalytic effect, and that shows that you were really engaging with it. And you would have been reasoning. You right. won't have been aware of it. Yeah. But your whole body, and we think with our whole body, this idea we just think with our brains is a very recent one. And just not true to the biblical witness, where you think with your heart. Mm. (laughs) Um, So you would have been thinking, even though you're not aware of it. And there comes a change and you've made a decision through all sorts of ways, which probably could be reconstructed Mm. if one had access to all the different things that went in and all the way you were and the thing mm-hmm. was but it all happens 
to some degree unconsciously. Yeah. Um, and there is something wonderful about that. There's something almost liturgical about it. Mm. Because a good piece of worship, a good piece of liturgy, you come in and you come out differently. Yeah. Something happens when you unite as a group with God and through art, because what is, whatever kind of worship you're engaging in, it's some kind of art, whether it's words or singing or silence or where you are, architecture, it all works together to change you. Yeah. And there is, there is something wonderful about that. There is no life I know to compare with pure imagination living there you'll be free if you truly wish to be a story goes as my friend barney imagines it that there was once a little boy who lived very much in his own imaginative world, always reading ancient mythologies, making up stories, fantastic creatures and foreign magical lands, until one day his priest spoke with him and advised him that in a world like this world, where there is so much suffering, where there is so much charitable work to be done, where so many people have never heard the gospel, that he would be misusing his time to spend it crafting imaginative other worlds instead of lending a hand in this one. That boy's name was John Ronald Rule Tolkien. And with 70 years of hindsight, we can see what this priest would never have been able to imagine, that few Christians in the 20th century have been more widely read by non-Christians than him. The Christian values that surge through Lord of the Rings have brought everyone in the West closer to understanding Christianity and seeing how plausible and compelling it is to believe in. This podcast is not a Tolkien fanboy episode, and to be honest, if Tolkien were alive today, or Lewis or the other Inklings, I think they would be urging us to take what we have learned about the role of the arts from them and look around us at what is happening in the arts today and to engage with that now. As a little girl, I was taken from the age of two and a half to Matins, Book of Common Prayer Matins, every Sunday by my parents. I come from a Christian family. And immediately I was captivated both by the sense of awe and the divine that came through this worship, but also its beauty in the, the language, the earthiness you know, the mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like young sheep, you know. So I've got, I'm of the generation that has the Psalter, the Book of Common Prayer, the King James Bible in my body. So um, my specialism is the idea that, that texts and pictures and music doesn't just reflect religious ideas, it can be a creative way of actually engaging in faith and in theology. This is a conversation with Reverend Professor Alison Milbank about imagination 
and about the place of it within a religion like Christianity, a religion born out of actual events that can be reasonably defended for their historical reliability. You see, during the Enlightenment, reason and imagination were separated out as opposites. Both were still good, but you had to pick. Something was either reason or imagination. One of Alison's great contributions to philosophy and theology is her work critiquing this idea. She argues that imagination is not the alternative to reason, it is a form of reasoning itself, and a form of reasoning that humans are especially wired for. This conversation took place on a cold and sunny January morning in the sunroom of her cottage in Southwell, Nottingham, where she lives with her husband, Professor John Milbank. You can hear the sounds of her home. A phone rings. There is soup simmering on the stove in the background. As you listen to her bringing back together two things that, for Christianity at least, were never meant to separate. The thing that just captivated me that I wanted to understand a bit better from you is your teaching around the role of imagination. And I wanted to start by asking, you talk about the idea of the importance of having a religious sense woken up in people. Mm. And I was thinking about what would pe- what do people think today about religious sense and or having a, a religious mm. instinct. And I think what the average person on the street and what you mean by that might not be quite the same thing. And I just wonder if you mm. could explain a little about what you mean when you say the religious instinct or the religious sense. And then why is it important that that actually is woken up for people? Well, I'm very aware as an ordinary Christian and as a, a priest that most people don't, they've kind of lost any sense of the sacred. They don't live in sacred time, they don't live in sacred space. So, reaching out to them, the first thing you have to do is to make them aware of a deeper dimension to existence that there is more than we see. And that actually, although they may not be conscious of it, in their actual practice, they do have a sense of this religious depth that, you know, that there is there is a transcendent. Mm. I mean, I, I wouldn't use those words to them, but this is what I'm using to yeah, you, that there yeah, is yeah. a sense of the divine undergirding the world that we see. So, for example, when people have a new baby, and also when people die, these two either ends of life, when people have a new baby, they know that that little child is more than a bundle of flesh. Mm. They are aware that the child comes to them like a gift from outside. One moment the child is part of your body if you're a woman, the next moment you've got this little individual in your arms and it comes like a gift from outside and has an enormous depth of significance and mystery. And that is what I mean by the religious sense, a sense that there is a meaning to life and to people and that people have this mysterious depth, which of course comes from their being made by God. So it's awakening that in people. And similarly, when somebody dies, one moment it's the person you know and love, the next moment suddenly they're not there. Mm. The shell is there. And that too tells you that people are more than just a physical object, as it Mm. were, in the world, a bundle of cells. Um, So helping people to 
recognise this in their own lives mm. and to awaken a sense of it is where I think developing people's Christian faith it has to begin. Mm. And so for me, making strange, making the world strange, mm. which is what one of my great um, heroes, G.K. Chesterton, does in his stories, is very important in beginning the work of apologetics, making Christianity good to think yeah, and good yeah. to believe. You want yeah. to sunder people from a sense that the world is completely explicable, mm. uh, completely flat. Yeah. And obviously you can do that particularly through stories or yeah. poetry or art or, you know, these are mm. ways in which you can do it. Of course, for me, any mode of art is inherently religious because it assumes there is significance. If you can put a frame around some colours, you're saying these colours are good. They are wonderful. They have meaning. And if you're an atheist, technically there shouldn't be any meaning. You know, you've already opened the religious. That's what I mean by the religious. Something that ties you and gives you a vision of something beyond the purely phenomenal, the purely physical. Yeah. When you talk about the religious sense being woken up, there is the sense that people live in a, a world that is asleep in them or that's mm. that's not awakened. Why is it like that? How did that come about? Oh, sense? gosh. I do think people used to live in an enchanted universe. Yeah. They lived in in the the period that we might call Christendom, up to the Reformation Renaissance. Mm. People lived in what Charles Taylor calls a porous way. Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher who wrote a very influential book called A Secular Age, which tries to chart changes in our understanding of experience. And so in traditional cultures, whether they're Christian or whatever, um, you're not a discrete individual all round in your own little dodge and car carapace you exist in a world where you find yourself a within a community but also within a world of spirits um, which are traversed by forces whether good or ill so you you live in a world that is alive yeah. In the natural world, in the medieval period, was a series of signs where everything pointed to God. You know, everything can show something about the divine, even things that seem almost against mm. the divine. So that every animal was was there to teach you something. It taught you. Every animal had virtues to teach you. Every animal had vices. And you, you know, you learnt from yeah. creatures so the whole world was the book of nature in which God is teaching you through the creation. That begins to break up through a combination of the Reformation and the scientific revolution, okay. whereby um, the world now is something that we can measure. It's still, for Francis Bacon, um, it's still a wonder that God wants you to learn about. But even the idea of your relation to nature has begun to change and nature is beginning to be downgraded. So by the time you get to the philosopher Descartes, he thinks animals are just machines. Mm. You know, you can do vivisection on animals. And he did. 
um, many scientists did in the 17th century, even very devout ones, because they thought that the, the world has now become a kind of dead world. <laughs> you know, only the yeah. spiritual is somehow real, and you begin this sort of dualism. Um, and there are many, many other complicating factors to do with the Industrial Revolution and our separation from nature, the Enlightenment and its questioning yeah. of religious truth. You know, it's a really complicated story. Yeah. And it does begin in the medieval period by various philosophical changes to do with our relation to the natural world and to God. But um, it is complicated. But basically, we do live in this flattened world where even yeah. religious people the secular goes through them i would imagine then if you don't do that if you just engage someone on the terms of this dead world it's quite difficult to bring the enchanted message of christianity into that in, in that set of assumptions it, it just won't fit it just won't fit you can't even explain the parables properly mm. because parables depend upon this sense of an enchanted world where everything has significance mm. So it is, it's a kind of pre-work and where the imagination is crucial mm -hmm. because imagination is the way that we imagine, you're sorry, <laughs> tautologist, is the way <laughs> we think about something that isn't there or that isn't immediately visible. It yeah. can work through the visible, but it's an understanding things might be different. We're not fated to live in the way we live. Yeah. We have freedom, but to express the freedom that Christians believe in, yeah. uh, you've, you've somehow got to engage people's imaginations. One of the things I liked that you wrote about was picking up on some writing from C.S. Lewis on mm -hmm. sort of debunking the myth that imagination and works of art are all about kind of something we have to be wary of because they cast a spell over us. Um, yes. And actually, you're almost, I think, making the opposite point or, or, or picking up on C.S. Lewis on that. Could you say a little bit about that? He talks about breaking the spell. Mm. If you remember in uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it's the white witch who casts a spell over people that turns them to stone, that takes away their humanity. Aslan comes along and breaks the spell with a deeper magic. But for C.S. Lewis, of course, this deeper magic is highly rational. <laughs> for him, we live in a world where we're all under a spell, where we think that the secular and the way it does things is the only reality. And we take this as reasonable when very often it can be questioned. And I'm not trying to deny the importance of rational debate and mm. actually taking on the new atheists, um, yeah. this kind of thing. And C.S. Lewis, of course, who had a a very, very high view of reason would feel this is, is terribly important. But we yeah. do so by yoking imagination and reason together yeah. and even showing that imagination is a form, is essential to reasoning. If you're yeah. a scientist, you have to imagine a hypothesis yeah. and then you test it. Um, you know, the two things are part of the, the reasoning that goes on in scientific empirical knowledge yeah. and if we are to think differently we have to realize it is possible to mm. think differently and that's why imagination has to have a role but it is one it's not just re-enchanting the world as people say it's revealing the fact that we are already in a world that assumes things 
that are not the case and do not really make holistic sense. So reason being separated from imagination in the, in the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And I think you said that, it, that the two of them were still kind of, imagination was still valued at least for, for a while. But yeah, certainly by Kant. Yeah. Kant in some places can have quite a productive idea of the imagination. Mm. But it, it still, he has this enormous separation still though between the things that we experience, mm. phenomena, and things in themselves, yeah. noumena, yeah. to which he says we have no perceptual access. Yeah. And so you live in this very divided world where you've got this dead world of phenomena, really, which mm. are completely under your perceptual control, and then this shadowy, mysterious, noumenal world, and there's no communication. Mm. Whereas the Romantics, like Coderidge, for example, um, or the Schlegel brothers in Germany, or Navalis, much more want to see there being a higher view of imagination as a reasoning process. Yeah. Coleridge calls yeah. it in his Biographica Literaria, chapter 13, an echo of mm. the divine I am in us mm. that enables us to perceive. It's God's creative power yeah. that makes it possible for us to perceive at all. And then we ourselves in secondary imagination, dissolve the world and recreate it in a kind of, to use Tolkien's language, sub-creative kind of manner. Yeah. We are yeah. made in the image of God as creators. Mm. In your writing you talk about this idea of, I think in the context of all of this post-modern ideas of truth and, and mm. so forth, that we need to kind of out-narrate the secular narratives and specifically that imagination and, and the arts are key in that. And I was wondering if you have any examples either of within Christianity, but maybe even, maybe not actually, maybe outside of the faith of where some kind of worldview or group or political movement has used the arts in a really positive way, a really successful way to out-narrate the kind of prevailing worldview around it. It's difficult to think of political movements. I mean, I suppose some of the base communities in Latin America, in Nicaragua, for example, produce their own paintings mm. by ordinary people very often, where they show what's really going on in terms mm. of violence and drug cartels and land grabbing in relation to putting the Christian story in the middle of it. Mm. That would be an example of political groups. I mean, where non-violence, you know, the Mother's Union, for example, under Idi Amin, you know, they would protest and they would protest without weapons, with flowers, and whenever people do that in front of sort of forces of violence, they are already out narrating mm. that narrative. They're saying there is a more foundational narrative that is the narrative of peace yeah. and love and justice, which is stronger than your narrative of, of violence. Mm. Um, so I suppose whenever that is done, and you see that in all sorts of circumstances, whenever any person in Tiananmen Square or Hong Kong or anywhere mm. where somebody voluntarily 
puts themselves in a position of peace mm -hmm. against that. They have already out-narrated that narrative. Mm. And in that sense, I guess, <laughs> Christ is the ultimate out-narrator. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Part of what led us to start fur was that we felt like a frustration and a lament and all the feels really about about the fact that Christianity is this incredible incredible narrative incredible hope for people and yet it's doesn't seem to have a contemporary visual language in in popular culture and and we're such a hyper visual culture now and mm. that, that there seems to be this kind of confused relationship between Christian and the arts, but specifically in kind of evangelical communities, the, one, the communities we grew up in, in yes, particular. It, it's particularly reformed, I think, because obviously yeah. Luther, in Lutheran churches, they used the visual arts for propaganda to begin with. Mm. Um, one of the earliest things is Cranach's um, series of pictures of Christ's passion. On the one side, you see Christ's passion. On the other side, you see the Pope's behaviour. So there is Christ washing the disciples' feet and there are people kissing the, the Pope's toe, you know. So, <laughs> so, you know, Lutheranism was quite yeah. quick to pick on the visual. And Cranach, in particular, does wonderful paintings of Lutheran communion services. and mm. They are made with prayer, thought of as acts of prayer, there to take you as windows through to an understanding of the divine, yeah. but also to see that everything you do in worship having that same quality. So, you know, if you're going to put images up on a screen, don't just use cheap clip art, mm, because yeah. the image should be worthy of the worship. It, it should, you know, have the best quality of everything that you have. And think about the medium of what you do as conveying the message. Mm. I mean, one of the ways in which I'm sometimes a bit critical of the, some of the things that people do in messy church, for example, is it's a wonderful idea, mm. but the children or grown-ups, whoever's doing the craft activities, should be learning through what they're doing. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Feast of Christ the King, the gospel is, you know, sort of the crucifixion. Mm. So the children, you can get that paper that's black, that has rainbow colours behind it and you scratch it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we made crucifixions where Christ reigns from the cross and the children were learning that what seems dark and suffering is actually redeeming life as a source of life. So they're learning through the medium mm -hmm. and it's getting congregations to understand everything they do as having that kind of value and worth and that's the visual as well as the music or the words or the poetry or anything that you might use. I love that. Um, should have that incarnational logic. Yeah, I love that. It's the incarnational logic. If, if, if God himself enters into form, then why would any kind of communication that we use to communicate that story be dismissive of the form? Absolutely. I mean, the, the Orthodox theologian Bulgakov says the world is a great grail because Christ was within it and therefore it, in some sense it, it holds him still. That's he, beautiful. And, uh, and we, we, we shouldn't be afraid of, you know, having art exhibitions in your churches. Mm -hmm. 
um, photography. You know, there are all sorts of ways in which you can engage people. I think I mentioned in my imaginative apologetics essay, years ago when Sam Wells was a vicar in Cambridge, mm. he had a group of women who'd been abused, I think, to do their own photographic exhibition of how they saw the parish, how they understood oh, it, yeah. and to yeah. sort of bring them in to sort of understand how they see the world through art. Mm. You know, so it, it's a way of engaging people. Um, you don't have to be victims in front of images that sort of get in the way of you. They become enabling things yeah, to do with, yeah. with justice and truth and all sorts of understanding things. Um, I hope somebody will answer that. <laughs> In the process of doing what, what we're doing, which is a project that's about communicating Christianity mm -hmm. throughout, and it is missionally motivated, I guess. Mm -hmm. And we come from uh, Reformed tradition, so we're not we're not Catholics um, or Orthodox. But we have found that there's been a kind of consistent theme of some sort of reticence or confusion, or just not quite getting why you would communicate Christianity through art and things around one is that art is kind of like a an ambiguous form of communication you know that and actually celebrated that way in terms of you know it is to you what you want it to be or you know you, or you could read into it what you want kind of thing and that for something as significant and as weighty as the christian gospel we should be similar to the way you wouldn't you know you wouldn't have somebody in a courtroom making their case through a painting you know there's there's this kind of reliability of the the written and spoken word that that I think is that, that has a, its place in the judicial system but in, in terms of Christian communication it seems to there seems to be this idea that it's not a safe or it's not a reliable um, or even sometimes that it's a bit it's a bit frivolous for something as serious and important as Christian communication and evangelism and mission and and I just wonder what you would say to that well, I think they misunderstand that words themselves are ambiguous. <laughs> they're, they're not as easy as we think people can read them in many, many ways. And although I would say in scripture, there is always what you might call the literal level, which is crucial. There is also a sense in which the meaning of scripture itself is inexhaustible. Mm. We will all read it differently. And so to make this enormous distinction between what we learn through words and what we learn now, obviously we believe that scripture is inspired word of God, but we also think that God is also the creator and has revealed himself visually mm -hmm. to us mm -hmm. and has therefore hallowed visual forms of communication, which are ones which people respond to mm. much more easily. Now, obviously, there are questions of ambiguity, mm. and I'm not saying you should use any image, but there is a huge wealth of stuff out there. You just start with the Methodist art collection, for example, mm. which is modern art that has been curated by Christians, which is in a magnificent form. People might respond to the version there of the feeding of the 5,000 as a picnic in a park in New York that brings scripture directly to their lives in a really direct form of communication. 
but you know there's riches within our own tradition i think they they've worked out that a third of all art in all galleries and museums is religious and most of that christian so you know we're talking about a repository that we would be mad to ignore that some of the greatest and most devout minds. Mm. You only have to look at a painting by Giotto, not to mention a painting by John Piper, and you will see somebody who loves God. Mm. You know, it, it comes across in that, and you would be mad not to make use of this resource to people today who, who respond visually to things. Obviously, it's a language like any other, just as the language of scripture has to be interpreted to people. This is a mode of interpretation and one way you can come close to people and you can get under their skin and under their defences and actually bring scripture close to people. So I think it's really serious and really worthwhile and an incredibly strong form of evangelism, but you need to teach people. And so there's this thing of art being true to the nature of our God and the way he works in scripture, art being true to the message itself, you know, word made flesh, art being true to uh, communicating through the arts, being true to our own church history. But then I think you said something that sort of, I think, tapped on the idea that art being true to what it means to even be a human in terms of how do humans actually, how are they compelled to something? What actually is the process that actually makes us want to desire something or believe in something? And the arts do that. Can you say more about that? The, the, the human as a sign-making creature yeah. is, I think, how David Jones puts it, who was both an artist and a poet. That That's just what we are like. Mm. And after all, evangelical worship is often highly visual. You know, there can be the images, the band, the even that is a visual thing. I, I mean, everything is, is, is there visually and it's responding to the fact that, that, that we are, that's, that's just how we are. Yeah. We've, we, in fact, they mark the time when we became fully human is the time when we made art, mm. when we buried our dead or we did something to our dead, you know, we gave them some kind of ceremony. So we became religious and we became artists in one and the same moment. And we became human. And, wow. and they think probably most of the cave art is, probably all of the cave art from the very, very ancient 50,000 years ago or whatever, is religious. <laughs> <laughs> so that's us. That's what it yeah. is to be human. Yeah, I love that. There's something about the way that God relates to us through art that allows for our, that it's like you were saying, our participation in it, our, our hand in it, our partnership in it. Some of the aspects of the conversations I find, I find interesting about kind of the evangelical kind of uh, problem with ambiguity is I find it, it problematic in itself in the sense that it, the, the journey that we can go on with God often needs like needs and requires our bit and our partnership to open it up and for it to be able to relate to us. Yes because art is a form of discovery and making things is discovery, and all the mistakes you made are part of the discovery. Mm. Just as in learning about God, there come mixtures of 
positive and negative, light and dark. So the theologian Dionysus the Areopagite, mm. on whom the great mystical tradition is built to some mm. degree, we learn something about God and then we learn that that is only a partial. You know, so we might say God is light, but God is more than light. Mm. So we might even say, well, God, you know, is also darkness. Mm. I don't mean in a moral sense. I just mean that, you know, that for him, the dark and the light are both alike. And then we might then in a new way come to an understanding of what it means to say God is light. So we're, we're learning through positive and negative. And in the same way in art, we learn through our mistakes, mm. our failures, and there is something beautiful about them. There is something beautiful about a handmade mug, even if it isn't perfectly symmetrical, mm. that there won't be in a machine-made one. Mm. The mark of the human, that mark of learning, discovery, launching yourself into something, is something valuable in itself, mm. which does go with this sense in which ambiguity not understanding completely is actually what you want to draw people into yeah just as doubt is part of faith faith is not faith if there is not doubt otherwise it would just be complete certainty we'd all go home and have a cup of tea yeah. uh, you know we're, we're we're learning all the time and and art is a process of learning and the idea that there might be multiple meanings and this verse might speak to you in a way that it doesn't speak to me is not something we should be frightened of. It's the inexhaustible richness of scripture. George MacDonald wrote all his religious fantasies on the understanding that they would mean different things to different people. And the richer the story, the greater the painting, the greater the sacred book, the more meanings it will bring out. Yeah. Though obviously each of them, in a sense, will all make sense in the end, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not trying to say that any old meaning is right, because obviously it isn't. You've got to be faithful to what's there, mm. just as the artist has to be faithful to the materials. You have to be humble mm. in front of the earth and the things of the earth to be an artist. And humility before the things of the earth is uh, certainly needed now. You yes. mentioned the ecological crisis. And I thought of that as well when I was reading your stuff about this idea of the spell and seeing the world as, as dead. Mm -hmm. And there's something particularly pertinent about us unlearning that in this in this time of, of crisis. Absolutely, that, it, that these are not sort of bits of stuff we can do what we like with, mm -hmm. but this is a divine creation. And if you read scripture, I think I started out this interview by quoting Psalm 114, the mountains skip like rams. Well, this is not a dead world yeah. in the world of the Psalms. Yeah. It's full of a sense that, you know, in the book of Isaiah, the trees will clap their hands. You know, this is not a dead world, God's yeah. world. It's a world where everything has a life of its own and yet they are one life, as Coleridge says, talking about the Psalms. I would say that the ecological crisis that we've got is the end point manifestation of the logic of, of seeing the world as just a dead thing, that a resource yes. that we can just literally consume. Yes. Um, and it's the tragic but coherent end to that that worldview, I think. 
And actually that stewardship, that dominion mm. that Genesis talks of is a creative one. Mm. It is a response to that, that we are there to, to help co-create. Mm. And it is our responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. The, while acknowledging that we are creatures like all the other creatures. Yeah, yeah, one of God's creation. One of, and they are all praising God. Yeah. And I think a, 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 an artistic view of the, the world that takes the art seriously does see, you know, the paint is worshipping God, mm. the animals are worshipping God, everybody's worshipping God by being what it is. Yeah. And we are becoming part of that by, by making and responding to the things God's made. I think it's really important to say that there are actually a thousand ways we can engender this longing for something we've forgotten we've even wanted, this homesickness for the truth, to use the arts to break the spell that keeps people imagining that the physical is the limit of their experience, that they're alone, locked in their buffered castles. So to awaken the religious sense is to bring them into relation with desire for love, and participation in God and the cosmos and give them a taste of the kingdom. Thank you so much, Alison. You've been so generous with your Not time and with your wisdom and sharing it with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I'm going to go and finish whizzing some soup. If you want to stay and have very simple lunch with us, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. If you don't know who we are, we are Fur. We communicate Christian theology and worldview through contemporary art, cultural artifacts, and new rituals to create fresh encounters with the faith for emerging generations. You can experience our other work at furproduction.com and follow us on social. Our Instagram is furproduction and our Twitter is fur underscore production. This episode was produced by Fur edited by Johnny Elwin, and the story about Tolkien was taken from writing by Dr. Barnabas Asprey. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Fur. Christianity through art. Christianity as art.